Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to ours and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man means you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. Tonight, hear from Kemba Smith, a woman who was battered but not broken. I was only on this earth 23 years, and I was sentenced to 24 and a half years in federal prison. The only child of a middle-class family, Kemba Smith graduated from high school and went on to pursue a degree in social work. I simply fell in love with the, the wrong guy while I was a student in college. That wrong guy was the leader of a $4 million crack cocaine ring. And in the early 1990s, one of the FBI's most wanted. Kimba handled his money. I had talked to some bounty hunters, and he was asking me what it was that I had said during the conversation. I could not recollect everything that I said, and that angered him. And so he began um, beating me in my body and um, kicking me. There was a particular time where I did try to leave, um, but I think ultimately um, because of the dynamics of the conspiracy, the drug conspiracy, he had been to my parents' home. Um, he had killed his best friend because he thought his best friend had cooperated with the authorities. Um, it became a point where the authorities wanted me to give them him on a silver platter, and ultimately I just felt like a robot, like I had to do whatever it was that he told me to do in order to protect myself and in order to protect my family. Kimba's boyfriend was found murdered, a suspect never arrested. At seven months pregnant, she turned herself in and pleaded guilty to conspiracy, money laundering, and lying to authorities. Her sentence, 24 and a half years with no chance of parole. (laughs) 
In prison, Kimba gave birth as her family and civil rights groups fought for her release, saying she was a battered woman forced into being a drug mule for drugs she had never sold, used, or handled. I do think that there should have been some punishment. Um, I'm not one of those people that have had the prison experience that says, oh, I didn't do anything wrong or, oh, it was all his fault. Um, I do believe that 24 and a half years was um, excessive. Kimba's story got national attention, and after serving six and a half years, then-President Bill Clinton gave her clemency, setting her free on December 22, 2000. National organizations, congressional members, People rallied behind my case and my cause because they thought it would set a precedent for other individuals who were similar. And it did. Her involvement with lawmakers in several states fueled a re-examination of lengthy prison sentences for first-time nonviolent drug offenders. And in 2010, President Obama passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which now limits the length of those sentences. There are hundreds of other Kimba Smiths who are still currently incarcerated in the federal system who deserve an opportunity to come home to. And basically it's just a matter of loving yourself more and understanding that you deserve better. You don't deserve to be in a situation where, you know, you're hurting, you're fearful. That's not what love's about. Production on a movie about Kemba's life will begin in the fall. Next month, she'll be in Fort Wayne for a weekend of speaking engagements. On Friday, June 3rd, she'll speak at the Anthos Career Center at 1230. And Sunday, June 5th, she'll give a presentation at Imani Baptist Temple at 930 a.m. Tonight, at Our Common Ground, we welcome Kimba Smith, activist, advocate, attorney, and former federal prisoner. I'm Janice Graham. This is our common ground, and I'll be listening for you. And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Tonight, a very special, special Our Common Ground. Our guest, Kimba Smith. After enduring a turbulent, turbulent sentencing of 24.5 years and serving 6.5 years in federal prison, she regained her freedom after President Bill Clinton granted her clemency on December 20, 2000. Her case drew support from across the nation and, and the world to reverse a disturbing trend in the rise of lengthy sentences for first-time nonviolent drug offenders. Her story has been featured on CNN, Nightline, Court TV, our Common Ground, The Early Morning Show, Donahue, Judge Hatchett, and a host of other television programs. In addition, Kimba has been featured in several publications such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, Glamour, People, Jet Magazines, Emerge, and Essence Magazines. Kimba's traumatic life experiences forces today for us to look very seriously at what the war on drugs has done in our community. And tonight at Our Common Ground, in her first interview for her new book, 
poster child, the Kimba Smith story. She joins us on our common ground. Kimba Smith, I have waited many years to have you on the other side of this microphone. And my sister, I am so happy to have you. Well, thank you so very much for having me. And, um, you know, I'm just grateful for how God turns things around because I know we had had our initial conversations. I was still in prison and you were helping with the cause. So I definitely can appreciate this moment as well. And I appreciate you having me on the show and allowing me the opportunity to share with your listeners. Well, you know, Kimba, this month I am celebrating 20 years in broadcasting of Black Talk Radio. And it certainly is such a wonderful anniversary gift for this program to be able to have you in a victorious celebration, to have your presence, to have your story. And I do want to say to you and to our listening audience that it takes a great deal to not only live this story, a great deal of courage to tell it. And you tell it in a way that is more profound and more helpful than any news report ever there was. So we, we celebrate your victory. We celebrate your courage. And we celebrate the honorable way in which you have moved from prison to advocate, activist, on behalf of those who still languish in our prisons as a result of the war on on drugs. Uh, I, I do want to say it's a wonderful book. And for those of you who are listening, the book is self-published. We're going to have Kimba tell us about how she produced the book, what it took. We're going to be talking with her parents uh, in our second hour tonight on this on on this special, William and Odessa Smith will be joining us uh, to talk a bit about their journey in this story. But, Kimba, one of the things that is so amazing to me as an activist that was was part of uh, the the story of bringing you out of such an unjust sentence is that everyone has told your story, and now you are telling. I mean, I can't, I mean, how many times have I told your story? Uh, right. <laughs> over, over, the, over the years, and especially during the time that you were in prison, telling your story over and over. And I will tell you that I was the bear in the room. <laughs> I because... <believe> <laughs> Because, you know, one of the things is that one of the reasons that you became the poster child is that you were iconic in terms of the destruction that the war on drugs created in our community. And the first thing that, one of the first issues that I recognized is that you were dealing, you were a victim of a syndrome that all battered women suffer from. And 
And no one in our justice system was willing to look at those issues. Let, let's talk about how you constructed this book. And and many people have asked me the question, and people have been, uh, and I know you know that people were pushing me to encourage you to write this book earlier. How did you come to the decision to write it, and how did you come to the point where you figured out where do I start, what do I include? Um, well, first of all, just. Um, coming out of prison and even prior to that, um, I had gotten on my hands and knees and prayed, and I tell people, be careful what you pray for, because I prayed and I asked God to allow me to be a voice so that um, I could prevent others from following, following in my footsteps and so that, you know, one less person would have to go through what it was that I went through. And, you know, pretty much... I would have to say that, you know, God moved a lot of people to be supportive on my half and on my parents' behalf. And so coming out of that situation, um, me recognizing that it was nothing but a miracle um, because, you know, the number of people that receive executive clemency and, you know, just to the thought even still today for me of the only reason why I'm out and free and moving on with my life is because the President of the United States signed a document for those prison doors to be open still baffles me. So when that did happen, I realized that I needed to still speak for those that I left behind because when those doors opened, I mean, and they you know, my paperwork was signed and I was walking out. I was not doing cartwheels out of the prison saying, woohoo, I'm, you know, happy. I'm get going home. I mean, basically I was surrounded around other women who were happy for me, but at the same time, if it were me, I would only, if it were me, I would have wished that that could have been me walking out the doors and me knowing that their situation was exactly like mine and they deserved the same opportunity as I did. It made me come home where there were moments where my mother would ask me, you know, Kim, what's wrong? Because she would see me tearing up and crying. And the fact was that I was thinking about those women that needed to be home too. And basically it was a survivor's guilt where I was just like, you know, why was I the fortunate one? And so ultimately it was still important for me to speak out for those that were left behind. I knew there were a lot of people that rallied on my behalf, and it wasn't just about Timba Smith. It was about the fastest growing population within prison were black women and organizations that hoped that my case would set a precedent for other people that had similar situations. So it was only right for me to come out and want to continue to share my story. But then actually putting it in writing in my own words because oftentimes I hear news reporters reporting it and, you know, some of the stuff is just not accurate, you know, but they're putting a story together and attaching a few quotes from me and it's out there. But um, I wanted to ultimately put my story out there in my own words and, you know, you said it earlier, I mean, I'm not sugarcoating anything. Um, pretty much I wanted to make sure that my story resonated and that I connected with those women who were just like the Kimba that I used to be and the women that are, you know, caught up in similar situations or even worse or, you know, give inspiration and hope to some parents that may be going through the same thing. But um, I just felt the commitment to... Um, 
want to actually put it in writing in my own words. And, you know, I just pray that, you know, it causes no, you know, harm to my folks or to my son, who's now 16, where, you know, the main two characters are his mom and dad. You know, his, you know, obviously his father's deceased now, but, you know, he's the person, the drug dealer that I became involved with. And despite the drug dealings, the domestic abuse, and how some people may view him, you know, as a monster, he's still, you know, my child's father, and my son recognizes that. So it's it's written in a way where, you know, I don't uh, demean him or paint him into being this monster. I just tell the story for what it is. And at the same time, there was some positive points throughout the story in which I felt as if, you know, needed to be documented as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Kimba, I met your parents at the – um LaRose Francis uh, African African Women's Conference in Newark, New Jersey. And uh it was the first time that I heard had heard them do a a a, a presentation about your case. Your mom was so overwhelmed by all of this that she in her presentation she simply wept and I looked at her and I said, that is Odessa Smith standing there with a daughter facing a 24-and-a-half-year prison sentence without the possibility of parole. You are the same age as my daughter. And I looked at Odessa Smith and said, there but for the grace of God go I. Because I, too, had sent a daughter out into the world to college, living on a campus, seeking out her independence. And it occurred to me at that moment that if you had not been in a black institution, if you had not been a black woman, all of it would have turned out so differently. And people used to question me heartily about that, and you know I had my spiel. Right. Because I don't deny how how white supremacy and racism had its place in your story. And one of the things that I used to say to Uh, especially parent groups that I spoke to on your behalf, is that you have to understand it does not matter that you are middle class. It does not matter that you have money in the bank. None of those things matter, that you are educated as well, that you are middle class because in the eyes of these courts, black people are all the same. Black children are all the same. And that was that was really a, a, a tough row to try to convince people that somehow this was unique. And one of the things that we find out now uh, that we know we understand and most people embrace is that the laws having to do with girlfriends of drug dealers and how that law was changed right at the right time for uh, whatever the the law enforcement wanted to do 
was made for, for, for black and brown women. When, when you were first arrested, did, you, did, did it occur to you that somehow a judge who pretty much napped through your entire trial, mm-hmm. a judge who dismissed all of the testimony having to do with the battered, with, with the fact that much of your behavior was attributed to the fact that you were scared. I mean, Kimber, you remember the first time I talked to you, I said to you, don't you ever apologize because you did what you needed to do to stay alive. And I said right. to your, your, you know, I said, I said to your mother, you know, one of our blessings is that she's alive, that she was able to survive this without being killed. So did it ever occur to you when you when you first went into prison? This is happening to me for differently than it would happen to my white counterpart. Did that did that come into play? Uh yes, it did and I had a US marshal tell me that if I was white that I wouldn't have been sitting in there cuz I I know he was um pretty disgusted at the fact that you know I was pregnant and that they weren't allowing me um, to have a bond to go home to have my child, and he pretty much shook his head. But um, it did it did occur to me that you know had I been a white woman that I wouldn't be in the same situation, unless 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 maybe it was still dealing with a, a black drug dealer, because I mean I have um, come in contact with actually she received executive clemency from President Clinton to Deanne Kaufman. And she had the prosecutor ask her if she was an in lover. I didn't. I don't know if you're okay with saying the in word. Yeah, I'm, but I'm, yeah, it's a it's a reality in our lives. Right. So yeah, you know, and I, and these are the kinds of some things. There can be situations such as that. Yeah. These are the kinds of painful things that you deal with in the book. And thank you. I I felt very honored to read the book pre publication, and I think you have done a very fine job in telling your story your way. And the thing that strikes me most is that you open the book with Armani and you close the book, a very powerful closing, with Armani. Can you tell our audience what he has meant in terms of the entire journey that you have taken and and one of the things that I know that you are aware of that we have so many Armanis that didn't have the kind of support that your family and others friends church provided in seeking security and safety for him while you were in prison was it a conscious decision to start and end your story with him uh, it was, um, and uh, you know, most people will see that um, that you know the book. My book is Post a Child: The Kimba Smith Story, written by Kimba Smith with Monique Moore. So I work with someone um, with getting the book done because ultimately, um, because at the time, because it's, it's been a process with coming with this final product, and you know, initially with starting off, I was still healing from everything. So um, I was very grateful that, you know, Monique helped me 
with that process because, you know, we probably still wouldn't have a book yet. But um, between between our conversations, um, we did come to the conclusion that that's how, because in, in my opinion, um, that was probably one of the most painful feelings and the lowest I could have possibly been because, you know, in every girl's life, you know, you dream of, you know, get building your career, going off, getting married, having a child, and, you know, life just being, you know, bold cherry. But ultimately, you know, here I was, you know, going to doctor's visits in an orange jumpsuit and giving birth to my first child in such a inhumane, oppressive situation. So we thought that that was the most powerful and impactful, but basically um, – it's my son that I realized that if it had not been for him, that, you know, I could have very well been in the apartment with Peter, his father, when he was killed and murdered in Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. basically my son throughout that whole process was my strength, my light. Um, I prayed and asked God to allow me to eventually one day be a mother to him because I, when I was sentenced to the 294 months, which was equivalent to 24 and a half years, you know, basically if I believed that, I wouldn't have come home until he was a grown man, you know, and that was me being sentenced longer than I had even lived on the on this earth. So it was very hard for me to comprehend that I wouldn't be able to raise him. And, you know, again, when I reflect back and just think about where I am today, Um, I'm just, you know, very grateful in the fact that I was able to be a a strong part in his life. And basically where I was at that six-and-a-half-year point of my prison sentence, my son was old enough and conscious enough to realize what was going on and his emotions were getting engulfed in it. And where at the end of prison visits, he was crying. You know, because he wanted to stay with me. He on the phone where there was recording conversations. He would ask me, you know, mommy, how come you can't just climb the fence? And I'm like, good lord, Armani, don't talk like that. <laughs> you know, over uh-huh, these recorded uh-huh. conversations in federal prison. But um, <laughs> basically, you know, um, in ending with him, and because of the death, the drama, all of what we endured as far as you know, relationship-wise, I want Armani to know that, you know, he's the positive that came out of all of that. And had it not been for him, that I don't know if I would have made it going through my ordeal. I would trust that God would have given me the strength to do it. But Armani, knowing that I had a child that hopefully I was praying that I would get home to, that was enabling me to want to continue being a better person and even doing what I could possibly do And while I was incarcerated to give back to other people that would help me raise him when I came out of prison. So it was a conscious effort to to begin and end with him because ultimately he's my number one concern with even putting everything out there. And no mm-hmm. matter what, I want him to realize that, you know, he is number one in priority, you know, in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is um, a, a very powerful message that you put in in the book um i i i found the closing you know my heart seized uh at the closing uh of the book where you dedicate um to to your son armani uh 
Um, it is just so heart-wrenching and so refreshing. I, I told your mother when I read that portion of the book, it was like the air came out of the room. Wow. Um, and and that was, I had spent an awful lot of time with Armani while you were in prison. I just love that little boy, and and he's not a little boy anymore. Yeah, he yeah, really we've got to get it. there to see you so you can see. Let me, let me ask you how difficult it was. I mean, you know, it's 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 very difficult. I I, I found even while we were had the um, justice for Kimba Smith campaign going, and I was doing an awful lot of speaking and radio interviews and newspaper interviews and the whole nine yards. Um, I, I found that some things I would step around simply out of respect for your privacy. Uh, and 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 I wouldn't talk about certain things, but when you wrote this book, you laid out details that I never would have thought that you would include. I mean, some of the stuff I, you know, I was talking to Odessa, and I was saying some of the stuff I wasn't even aware of. Mm-hmm. And you made that decision because of what? Because I want to relate, I want to be relatable to the young girls out there that are still in it. And as much as you know, you know, I, it probably would be easier for me to leave some of that out. But mm-hmm. I'm committed to the purpose of God and the fact that I can't get caught up in what other people are going to say. Um, that I have to be true to me and true to my experience and hoping that it will change somebody else. And I think that the younger crowd, younger audience would be able to relate to some of this stuff that I did um, reveal. Yeah. You're listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and our guest tonight is Kimba Smith, She is the executive director of the Kimba Smith Foundation, which can be found at KimbaSmithFoundation.org. We're going to be talking about that. When we come back from break, we're also going to be talking uh, about Kimba, more about Kimba and what she's doing in her role as advocate and advocacy uh, for women who are victims of violence and intimate and domestic relationships. We're going to be talking with her about what men can do. We're also going to be talking with her about mandatory minimum sentencing and the the need still to address those issues. This is Our Common Ground, and we'll be right back. I 
I do think that there should have been some punishment. Um, I'm not one of those people that have had the prison experience that says, oh, I didn't do anything wrong or, oh, it was all his fault. Um, I do believe the 24 and a half years was um, excessive. Kimba's story got national attention, and after serving six and a half years, then-President Bill Clinton gave her clemency, setting her free on December 22, 2000. National organizations, congressional members, People rallied behind my case and my cause because they thought it would set a precedent for other individuals who were similar. And it did. Her involvement with lawmakers in several states fueled a re-examination of lengthy prison sentences for first-time nonviolent drug offenders. And in 2010, President Obama passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which now limits the length of those sentences. There are hundreds of other Kimba Smiths who are still currently incarcerated in the federal system who deserve an opportunity to come home too. And basically it's just a matter of loving yourself more. I believe in sex. I believe in love. I believe in taking responsibility. I believe in using condoms. Yo confío en mi comunidad. I believe in being honest and open. I believe in keeping my partner safe. I believe in myself. I believe in stopping HIV. I believe in the future. HIV stops with me. 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 Common Ground, our guest tonight. If you are just joining us, Kimba Smith. She is author, advocate, activist. Her new book, Poster Child, The Kimba Smith Story, will be published very, very soon, and you will not want to hear her story, even though you probably heard it many, many times over the past year, during the years of uh, protest and her 24 and a half year sentence where she served six and a half years in federal penitentiary. Kimba, again, thank you so much uh, for for being with us. We're going to take your calls at 347-838-9852. We'll be listening for you with uh, Kimba Smith. Uh, but one of the things I want you to tell people about is what you, all of the things, in a nutshell, <laughs> that you have accomplished <laughs> over the last years that you have been out of prison. You are a a justice conference, black conference, women's conference speaker extraordinaire. I mean, I looked at a Chicago town meeting. Um, and there you were. I love it. Tell us about what you've been yeah. doing. Yeah. Um, 
well, my primary thing is, and it has been for the past few years, and like less than 30 days when I was out of prison, I started public speaking. And um, so basically, you know, I I am even on the road um, now. And uh, ultimately, it was important for me to um, go back to school to finish and complete my undergraduate degree. So I um, initially started out my college years wanting to, uh, well, start out biology major, switch to business. And so I received my degree in social work um, because I felt as if so much had been given to me that I wanted to be able to give back. And um, thereafter, I received a two-year fellowship from um, Open Society Institute out of New York where I advocated and um, went to, in particular, HBCUs, but to particular colleges to uh, educate students about how easy it is to get caught up um, in to drug conspiracy and educating them about drug laws and motivating them to want to uh, be advocates for drug policy reform. And then after that, I did a year of law school at Howard um, University. I'm grateful for the experience, um, but there led to some circumstances where I wasn't able um, to go back. I raised um, my son, and he's now 16 and getting ready to finished high school himself. He's in a, at a senior year. Um, in 2006, I met um, my now husband. Um, we've been married for um, two years, and we were blessed to um, have a little girl. Um, so I have a 15-month-old daughter. Her name is Phoenix. And um, just been continuing to do advocacy work. I'm um, I'm up on the hill frequently lobbying, um, meeting with criminal justice organizations and justice roundtable group meetings where there are organizations such as um, Families Against Mandatory Minimum, uh, ACLU, um, Open Society that I mentioned, Drug Policy Alliance, the NAACP, um, National Organization, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and, you know, special shout-out to the Legal Defense Fund for um, their legal um, efforts that they gave me pro bono and Elaine Jones. Um, but pretty much, you know, the people that you and my parents used to work with, well, I pretty much just came out of prison and made sure that, you know, I connected with them and continued the work in spite of me being released. I felt as if it was important for me to still be a face to this issue. And so that's what I've done, and I've um, continued to develop, develop uh, strong relationships with Congressman Bobby Scott and Maxine Waters. I've done work with Sheila Jackson Lee in Texas. Um, and so this year, well, the end of um, 2010, we've received, uh, you know, good news with the Fair Sentencing Act with uh, the crack versus powder cocaine ratio um, being reduced instead of 100 to 1, and now it's 18 to 1, which I believe, you know, it's a victory, but I was still not pleased with the 18 to 1. It should be 1 to 1. It's the same drug, and we know who it, who it targets mostly, which is African-American um, people and people of color. But um, I found out uh, recently that they have made that uh, act, that uh, bill, retroactive. So it will affect people who were already incarcerated because before that was an issue as well. But um, just, you know, staying connected and trying to do advocacy and my public speaking and uh, making sure that 
I'm sharing my story with um, the youth and young people in the community um, and also trying to balance my personal life as well. So it's all been working out, and we'll see how the dynamics change with this book and promoting it. Mm -hmm. For those of you who are just joining us, our guest tonight at this special is Kimba Smith. She is the author of a new book, Poster Child, The Kimba Smith Story. She was indeed the poster child for mandatory minimum sentencing and what happens to women of color who are in violent relationships and cannot escape. You know, Kimba, I, I, I have this thing. I have, I have your clemency letter from President Bill Clinton framed, and it's in my den. And then I have a picture of your parents with Armani with you in prison. And then I have a picture of you where you are, I think it's your first or second, it was at the Delta Convention, um, where you spoke, and it was like your first year, first or second year out of prison. And I was sitting there saying, here is a woman who never sold, never distributed, never handled, but was sentenced on three counts. Listen to this, folks, because this can happen to any one of us. One count was conspiracy to possess. To, to a conspiracy to distribute 255 kilos of crack cocaine. Now, how did they get to the 255? Um, they never explained it. They, cons- I don't know if you want me to answer that or not. Go ahead. Yeah, I want you to answer all three of these. Conspiracy okay. to... Conceal, to, uh, making and are concealing materially false facts, and conspiracy to blunder. <laughs> right. <laughs> conspiracy not to be the drug dealer. How about that one? <laughs> Explain to us. The difference between your understanding when you were sentenced about these counts and what you um, understand now. Yeah, well, that's that's a can be a complicated and long-winded um, question, but I'll try to be as brief as possible. Um, basically, I ended up pleading guilty to. Um, those charges and basically at the time my lawyer was friends with the prosecutor and he had said that if I pled guilty to those charges that I would only receive 24 months Um, and that was something that was arranged between the two of them and ultimately the prosecutor reneged on that promise and so when I pled guilty I can remember signing the document prior to going into the court proceeding and I said to my lawyer, you know, I'm really scared. I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing. And my lawyer said back to me, as I signed it and slid the paper back through the slot, he says to me, you know, Kim, I'm, you know, Kimba, I'm scared too. And at that point, I just felt cold because I was just like, I'm not doing the right thing. Cause, or no lawyer should be telling me he's scared too, you know. And so... Basically, by me signing that document and 
and and pleading guilty to those charges. Um, number one, I should have never pled guilty to a conspiracy drug charge without having a drug weight attributed to it. Because basically the 255 keys was the total amount of drugs involved in the conspiracy. But in their whole offense pre-sentence report, they stated in the pre-sentence report that I didn't meet Peter until like 1991, um, 1991, yeah, and the drug conspiracy started back in like 1988, 89. If you did want to attribute all of that, that I don't even know how much drugs that is, if you did want to, how could you attribute it to me when I didn't meet him until two years after when you all supposedly said that this conspiracy began? And so the... The conspiracy drug charge carried the most amount of time. The money laundering and the false statements both carried the max, I believe, of um, 60 months, five years. Mm -hmm. The um, false statements came from, charge came from the fact that the federal authorities wanted me to come in and talk to them after Peter had killed his best friend because he thought his best friend was cooperating with the authorities. Pretty much I went in there and told them everything that Peter had instructed me to tell them after, you know, Peter had been calling my parents' house, sending flowers to my parents' house, letting me know that he still was watching me, and ultimately I was fearful to cooperate mm -hmm. with the authorities at that time. So that's where that charge came from. And then mm -hmm. um, the money laundering charge came from the purchase of the Jeep where, you know, again in my story I'm very real with that scenario for the simple fact I went into the car dealership with Peter, him telling me that he wanted to, that he was going to get a Jeep and that, you know, he wanted it to be a gift to me and not even knowing that I was going to be sitting at the table signing any documents and ultimately from me doing that they said that I laundered money. But understand that this was just a Jeep, but somehow my paperwork says that I laundered over a million dollars worth of stuff, which was Ooh. totally bogus. Yeah. One of the reasons, Kimba, that I bring this up is that I think you do such a wonderful job of illustrating so many things that is that is corrupt, that is inept, that is incompetent, not only in, the, in our justice system, but with attorneys in general, with people who start making deals and they don't know the law and know that the people that they are dealing with are people who have no interest in justice. You know, one of the things that struck me in the book and it struck me uh, as I learned more and more about your story years ago was the idea that there was political motivation behind not only the, your prosecution but behind your sentencing. And they ran very deep. Now, for those of you who do not know the story, we do suggest that you, you buy the book, Poster Child, The Kimba Smith Story. But also on the Our Common Ground website, we have given you a link to read the Emerge magazine coverage of Kimba's incarceration 
and arrest, incarceration, and and story. Uh, our number, if you would like to get in on this, and Kimba, I'd like to take a couple of calls before we get in uh, to the second hour because we're going to be talking with your parents. Um, yes. Yeah. So um, let's go to our phones, 432, you're on the air. I respect you in this special edition of Our Common Ground with Kimba Smith. Hello, Ms. Janice Graham. This is Black. How you doing? Good to hear from you, Black. Thank you for your call. Thank you, ma'am. Ms. Kimba Smith, let me say uh, God bless you. God bless Ms. Janice. God bless the audience. And uh, congratulations for your accomplishments. My question is um, simply uh, based, I, I hear your efforts and everything that, mm-hmm. that you're committing yourself to uh, resolving the issues that uh, that you find yourself uh, uh, involved in. I mean, and, and as mm-hmm. far as uh, uh, governmental situations, judicial situations, and so forth. Just, just a question: How many, if you could, if you could multiply yourself? How many with the same passion and fervence that you have would it take to bring about a change, I mean a dynamic, fundamental, irreversible change uh, in the way the judicial system works today? If you uh, just give a rough estimate. I'm in Texas, and um, I had a, my, my, my ex-wife, uh, uh, one of my, a couple of my stepsons, uh, we're incarcerated in, in the same type of situations, and I'm just wondering how much, how many would it take with the same, the fervent, passionate, uh, genuine, and committed, determined, focused desire and, and uh, application of your skills would it take to, to, to change things in your estimation? And I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. I appreciate y'all. Thank, Thank you, Black. Black. Thank you for your call. Down here, um, that is a very deep question. Um, it would take it would take many, um, and I, I need you to help me with this one um, because I get frustrated. Right. It 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 took eating and breathing. Um, no, and, and a dedication. And, and, and and even the thing that gets me, though, now, you know, I used to be sitting in the prison TV room watching my parents on CNN talk about this issue, watch Maxine Waters speak, you know, my name at the Million Woman March and how she wanted to see my case, see justice and everything. But since being home, like, I've met the Garrison twins' mom, Karen Garrison, she was out there trailblazing for her twins that went to Howard University that got caught up in the same situation. I've heard, um, uh, I can't think of, um, um, I can't think of her son's name right now, but if you go on to my TimbaSmith.com site, you'll see a um, town hall meeting, but it's this um, woman, Barbara Bates, her son, Christopher is serving it's a 19-year federal. Yeah, and yeah, she is like passionate, committed. 
you know, she's a, a leader in the community. You know, she doesn't say that her son was innocent, but she's going to do whatever she can do to make her voice heard about her son's sentence being unjust. And I think we need to have our people come together with that same fervent fire and, and forget people wanting to be judgmental, you know, the fact remains the kind of time that our people are getting isn't justified. And, you know, I'm also big on accountability and personal responsibility, but at the same time, you know, it's just obvious that we're the ones that are overpopulating the prison system and, you know, that something needs to be done about it and it needs to come to a point where, and even when you look at, like, the Rockefeller drug laws, and I know for a moment there was a big movement with that, with New York, where even the celebrities, Jay-Z, more, you know, different people got involved with it. And I guess that's the frustrating part because people could see it in their face and know this is not fair. But yeah. those people up on the hill, they don't care. And it comes yeah. to a point, well, what do we do to make them accountable and responsible mm-hmm. for? Even though you don't care, you have a constituent, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but you have people that are holding you accountable to make sure that these laws are fair. So it's just frustrating. Well, the thing is that they're not, the reality is that they are not designed to be fair, and um, and I'm going to be talking with your parents in the in the second hour with you, uh, I, I travel with them to many many uh, events, and one of the things that would just rock me off my feet, and sometimes Gus would have to come and get me, <laughs> is people saying, "Well, you know, she should have left." Well, you know, it's the law. Well, you know, a drug dealer is a drug dealer. Well, you know. And those are the things that we that we say that that gives permission to a justice system that provides no justice. That we cannot see that there is a design. So, one of the things that Black, to your question, and thank you so very much because it's an important question, is that you have to become an activist at heart. In our community, facing the kind of crisis that we are facing, facing the kind of campaigns, the war on drugs is a campaign. The war on putting women in their place is a campaign. The war on demonizing black women is a campaign, and we have to have a counter-campaign. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to believe that we are due justice. And when we do that, we get to the organizing. I mean, at the beginning of the program, for those of you who weren't here, one of the th- the first thing responses that I had to the Kimba Smith story after the first time hearing her parents tell it is there but the but for the grace of God go I. Mm-hmm. I'm not immune. No one is immune. You've got to as as Black Ice is saying in our chat room, you've got to organize, synergize and initialize. 
hey, that's great. I think I'm going to adopt that some, some, somewhere, somehow. But, Kimba, one of the things that we have got to do as activists, and I feel that I can use this radio program to do that, is to begin to train to provide a learning center for people who do want to be an activist. Don't tell me you think a problem is a problem. Once you identify a problem, you own it. And that is what we have to learn in our community, that we own these problems. You know, you talked about the Fair Sentencing Act that is somewhere, somewhere around here, and and that happened because we were able to activate people. Um, I mean, when one of the things that I prayed for for almost a year was that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund would take Kimba's case. That's one part of what you do as when you activate problems, you find the resources. I mean, how many times, Kimba, did your father and I sit on the phone trying to figure out, gaming up on some celebrities to try to get them to say something about this, your case? That is what you have to do, and complaining is therapeutic. Protesting is a strategy. So it's not good enough, Black, for people in your community to sit around and say, oh, that's so unjust at their kitchen table. you got to somehow find the avenues, the paths to organize, to synergize, to initiate. And I am so glad I did. I was just um, um, the people around me. Um, understood that one, I understood the issues, that two, I could articulate them, and three, I was willing to do whatever it took to get Kimba Smith out of Danbury prison. And that is how you do it. Kimba, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to take some more of your calls. Um, I'm going to look at my board and see if I've got somebody. Oh, yeah, i got to go to 954 it's going to put us off on our schedule, but 954, you've been waiting a long time, and I appreciate it. You're on our common ground. I respect you. With Kimba Smith. Respect you. Actually, I, I was listening, and uh, my computer or the airways were kind of making it hard to listen. But Okay, so you want to be put on hold. Timely. No, 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 okay. no, no. Don't you have me. Uh, okay, but you got to make it timely. brief, Rodney. got to go to a break. This is very timely and uplifting. And um, considering how the judicial system has always been in this country and how they keep trying to amplify these courtroom TV personalities, and in the lieu of this young woman, this white woman, they got away with basically murdering her child for giving the police false evidence. It makes me think of um, what um, Angela Davis went through trying to defend George Jackson. So my understanding of all of this, Sister Janice, when you're talking about how we need to construct ourselves, it's going to take some real blood and guts to deal with this system because since we can remember, 
you know, we've always been violated when it came to the so-called justice system of America, and I can't stand these court shows. And you got people like Nancy Grace and uh, Francis Crutz Wilson, who I had personal dealings with, and I not like her. So I'm, I'm apted to get certain people kicked off the bench and certain lawyers disbarred. That's one avenue of doing it. The other avenue of doing it is you, you're going to have to deal with these people on a confrontational level. I don't know how we're going to get around it. Yeah. Uh, Rhonda, I, I really Thank appreciate you. your comments, and I'm going to put you and put back me on, on the mute, if you will, because my computer yes, is messed I will. up here. Thank I you, certainly, sir. and thank you, and thank you for your listenership. Aronde calling out of Miami. 972, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. 972. Greetings, Janice, um, to you, to the callers and Sister the listeners. Sarah. Yes, ma'am, it's me. Out of Texas. Yes, ma'am. And to the guest, uh, Ms. Smith, how are you doing this evening? I'm great, thank you. Okay, I heard you were at the Delta Convention. Are you a Delta by chance? No, I'm I'm not. No, she was just a speaker. Oh, I'm a Delta. Okay, okay I but I have a I have love for the Deltas. Okay, <laughs> so, no, I'm an AKA. I was just um, I was oh, about, I was about to start the little rivalry thing again, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Kimba's Kimba's mother is your sister. But you must know her. Okay, we're good people then. You're in good company. (laughs) Okay, what I was going to talk about um, really quickly, uh, which what you you were with your sentencing, and I I do um, appreciate your show, and I did go on your website, and I did pull up the information for the book as well as for your foundation. So I will be going back and reading through them, and I do have that Emerge magazine, Janice. I still have it. That's one of my coffee table books. I make sure that people do not walk out of my house with that magazine. Because <laughs> I, I, I do have my Emerge, and I keep up I, with I understand. <laughs> if mine but, um, gets missing, it's a spot left in the wall. I know. So I, I try to <laughs> keep up with it whenever people come in my house to make sure my magazine does not walk out. But uh, <laughs> what you were saying with your situation, what you, um, with what this young lady went through, I happened to, I don't know if she was following the situation with that young girl, I believe her name is Africa, I can't remember what her last name is, out of New York. That is in a similar situation as yourself um, was caught up in. She went to this predominantly prestigious school, Preparatory Academy, and she got involved in a similar incident as yourself with her boyfriend being involved in, the drug dealer business, and they caught them, of course, with a cell phone. I don't know why people do their business on these cell phones, as well as the young lady at Harvard, because she got kicked out right before graduation because of a similar incident where her boyfriend or someone broke into a dorm was selling on campus, and now she's potentially going to be going away for a long time because of that involvement in a similar incident as yourself. And... I know people always like to say, you know, the personal responsibility, and I do agree with that. We do have to take responsibility for our behavior. But that is a word that really gets on my nerve when I hear that term personal responsibility because it sounds like a talking point coming from another side because when we do something, it's okay, we need to take personal responsibility, yes. But when they do something, oh, it was a misstep, they need therapy, they need to go because meth is really, really big. But if, if, if they're caught with a meth lab, they said, okay, we're going to send them to counseling, we're going to get them 
taken care of, but if you, as you said, with crack or whatever. Or they even have bagel. a TV show now, which yes. celebrates meth lab work. Correct, but but they, they send them away for therapy and everything else, but if someone gets caught with a little bit of weed or crack or whatever, we're going to say, okay, they are drug offenders, they're drug pushers, they're drug dealers, we need to put them away, lock them away, and throw away the key. So I want, you know, if you can just give me your brief take on that, because there's been quite a high incident. I don't know if you've been following it in the news with what happened to that young lady from Harvard a couple of years ago where her boyfriend, I believe, broke into the dorm or used her key card, and someone was shot and killed on campus. And it, it was it's real tragic that this woman came this far, about to graduate, and then she got to kicked out without even getting her diploma. I don't know if you're familiar with the situation, Janice. It's up in your neck of the I am. I am. And it's one of the focus issues that's going on at the Harvard Law um, Clinic right now. Um, and I think some things are going to happen, and I'm not at liberty to say what will happen, but I think some things are going to happen. Sarah, I think you made some fine points. And one of the things that we have to understand is we have to understand the interrelatedness of this, our attitudes about violence against women and violence in general in our community and how it injures us, hurts us. And something that we're going to talk about when we come back from break is the need to really begin to engage men in therapeutic approach around violence and their relationships with the women in our community. Sarah, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. I'll I'll listen to the rest of the show, Janice. Okay, thank you. Kimba, you know, it, it really does, Sarah has brought up a point that I do want to talk to you about and get your thoughts. Because you 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 talk you you skirt on this uh, in in the book toward the end about your homecoming and what it means to be able to reach back and also to teach. You're listening to Our Common Ground Special Edition with Kimba Smith. She was the icon of mandatory minimum sentencing and the injury and behavior that can be created as a result of intimate partner violence. I'm Janice Graham, and we'll be right back.
I believe in sex. I believe in love. I believe in taking responsibility. I believe in using... My life was going downhill fast. Everybody was on my case. Now, I kept hoping that life would change real soon. I knew drinking too much messed up my life. A friend suggested I check out AA. It worked. I found myself in an AA group. Finally, I've got my act together. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Check your phone book, newspaper, or AA.org.
pushback politics. So join us on our network, TruthWorks Network, on Wednesday night with Elvin Dowling and Friends, Architects of Change. On Monday, Power Views, the rebroadcasting and the reloading of truth at TruthWorks Network. And, of course, each Saturday, 10 p.m., please join me at Our Common Ground at our regularly scheduled broadcast, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, speaking truth to power and ourselves. And thank you for being with us tonight on this very special, special of Our Common Ground. Our guest is my sister, my daughter, and a soldier in victory, Kimba Smith. And her new book, Poster Child, the Kimba Smith story, she tells it in her way. Kimba, once again, thank you so much uh, for being with us. I hope Phoenix is um, staying um, <laughs> with her nap tonight. <laughs> she, I'm, taking, she, I'm taking her away from her mother while her mother is at a conference in Miami. Oh, that's real, real sad. <laughs> She she is, but I am supposed to be downstairs at eleven o'clock for a meeting. But, okay, um, what we're gonna just let me know do? How, yeah, uh, I'm gonna ask you to take uh, one more call, and then we'll go okay. to your parents after you have to leave us. Four four three, you're on the air. I respect you with Kimba Smith. Uh, this is Ray Winbush. Dr. Wimbush. Hi, Dr. Wimbush. How are you doing, Kimba? I'm doing great. I'm blessed. Thank you. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah. Hi, Janice. How you doing? Hey there, Brother brother Ray Bush. How are you? I'm so glad to see you in our chat room and to have you with us tonight. Yeah, real quick question, Kimba, because I know you got to get downstairs. But what I wanted to know, what is your relationship right now with Hampton University. I know it wasn't good at that time. And what do you think the role of the HBCU, you know, I'm at Morgan now, is in helping students who have been caught up, you know, with cases like yours? Do you think there is a role? I'm just curious about that. Uh, Okay. Well, you know, initially Hampton wanted to stay as far away from me as possible, my parents, and not wanting to have any connection to the ordeal. Um, Since coming home, um, my relationship, I know I was speaking for a corporate tour, um, the Pantene Totally Tour, and one of the stops was at Hampton University. And it got back to me that Hampton, um, the administration, was concerned about me being on campus, and they were actually thinking about requesting that I not be one of the panelists. And wow. fortunately, the corporate people that were um, responsible for, you know, having things lined up, one of the persons um, was a graduate of Hampton. And actually, you know, I'm not going to say his name or whatever, but actually after he graduated from Hampton, he got caught up in some stuff too. But basically um, he did finish um, Hampton, and he was just – he wrote a letter being a Hampton alumni and just basically saying how surprised he was, you know, with the administration and, you know, he didn't really understand their concerns. So ultimately I ended up still speaking there and – Obviously, like the students, they were wonderful. Um, and I guess their concern was, I don't, which I don't know why, but um, I guess they thought that I would bash, you know, Hampton 
or, or I guess make Hampton responsible, you know, for what happened to me. Yeah. And um, ultimately, that's that's not my intent. Now, I I can say, you know, I do believe that me being at Hampton, um, and maybe the security, police, um, campus security, you know, mm-hmm. maybe safety that they could have done more of a better job of educating the women on campus or and the men because it's not just the women that get preyed on, it's the college kids that want to have some extra cash, money, right. so they could walk on campus that get caught up in this stuff too. But just to, you know, tell the students how there are people that, you know, are driving on campus and, you know, who are drug dealers and you don't want to get caught up in that lifestyle. And so um, I know um, since uh, my release and also, you know, when I was supposed to do that tour, that they had been using my story, the Emerge article, in um, their University 101 freshman orientation classes. I'm not exactly sure if they still do it. But with Poster Child, so I'm glad you raised this issue in the HBCU in, in, in particular, is that I'm hoping that I, I am going to approach Hampton about seeing if it's, you know, my book is something that could be, continued to be used within um, the freshman orientation curriculum. And I have at um, University of Arkansas, Tom Bluff, spoken for their freshman orientation as well. But I do believe that HBCUs could um, step up because, you know, we are familiar of what can transpire. But to be quite frank, I mean, I've spoken at Michigan State, and a girl was there in the audience. I spoke to her afterwards in the same exact situation, and she's on a humongous white campus, you know. And I couldn't tell her to get out. I mean, I did tell her, but she wasn't hearing me. So yeah, it, it, yeah. It, 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 I think it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter really what campus you're on, that it, it does happen everywhere. For okay, those of you who you are listening, we have Dr. Ray. Wait, hold on, Ray. We have Dr. Raymond uh, Wimbush uh, on the line, talking with Kimba and joining us at our common ground. He's the director of the Urban Institute uh, at Morgan State University and the former, uh, formerly at Fisk University, and has a complete dedication to HBCUs and to the education and development of. Uh, young African children uh, uh, and, yes. and, and, and and students. And, and, and thank you, Dr. Wimbush, for your continued support, too, because the audience may not know, but I know you met my dad years ago and was supportive to us and to the cause, so I appreciate that. Well, no, no, just tell him I said hello and everything like that. And congratulations okay. on everything, Kimba, too. We're going to try to get Morgan State this year, too, so we'll be in touch, Okay. Okay. And and, right. and and Dr. Wimbush, let me ask you a question while we have you. Um, uh, William and Odessa Smith are on the line holding, waiting to come on, and I know Kimba has to leave. But in, 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 in your uh, expert um, expertise as an educator at the college level, what do you think HBCUs ought to be doing in educating, instructing, and and protecting? Well, I, I think what Kimba said is an incredibly good point, well taken. I think, this, you know, we are, most HBCUs are located in two areas. They're either in the 
in a very rural area like, let's say, Tuskegee, or they're in a very urban area like Morgan and Howard. Those are the two extremes. They're they're not like Mm -hmm. there's very few small town, like, you know, University of uh, uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill or Ann Arbor with the University of Michigan. They're usually in rural areas or urban areas. And I think security doesn't do enough to police the campus, not only, you know, to make sure somebody doesn't get robbed, but I see at many black colleges um, drugs coming on campus freely. There's a name for it at Morgan. They call these young ladies clean skirts, and they would rather deal with somebody that they know is less likely to be pulled over than those that are, you know, in the so-called hood. And I think that one of the things that, you know, security at black college campuses has got to do, they've got to kind of step up to the plate and watch some of these guys coming on campus driving brand-new Bentleys. And I'm not saying, this is not an exaggeration, knowing that a student couldn't afford that and trying to attract young ladies into the drug trade. So I think Kimba's point is well taken. While this can happen on all campus, clearly I'm more concerned about what's going on at HBCUs. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we certainly know that this story unfolds from a, a number of perspectives, and one of them has to do with Hampton. I mean, I wrote a very biting letter to the president of Hampton, especially after there was this um, controversy about uh, uh, Kimba's parents not participating in a panel on Hampton's campus. I mean, my letter was scathing. No bars, nothing. But I I think that we have to have an awareness, you know, And for those of you out there, I'm thinking about it. You ought to be thinking about it. I have a granddaughter who's who's going to college in September. And I have been trying to do as much as I can and provide her. As a matter of fact, she has the the galleys of Kimba's uh, book, reading it, because I want her to read it before she leaves. Right, right. No, no, there's you know, no doubt about that. Uh, I want to really, you know, listen to what uh, Gus and Odessa's have to say. I haven't talked to them in a number of years. Okay. Tell them I said hello, okay? And they I'm going to hang you. up and get their time, uh, okay? Uh, Odessa was just asking about you this afternoon. Okay, tell her I said hi, okay? And, and Ray, I want to say to you that as we begin our campaign for justice for Kimba Smith, You were one of the rare black men who understood the issues immediately. And that's very important. Yeah, well, thank you for that. You know, it was, I was at Fisk University at the time, and, you know, I was just appalled at some of the stuff that, you know, Hampton, a sister HBCU had done. And um, I remember when we brought uh, Gus and Odessa down, it was a powerful got several students interested in it, but it's, again, like I think as you said, Janice, it's very important for men to be involved with the issue of domestic violence. Too often we leave that 
to our sisters, and we got to do that. We got to be involved right. with that ourselves. Yeah, maybe you know, you and I have always uh, shared a love for letters, and maybe you and I ought to be writing that letter to our writing that book to our brothers. Doctor Winbush is the author of Belinda's Petition. You can give us your website, Ray, real quick. Oh, just contact me on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is, is that the is that the new response? That's yes, right. Facebook, Doctor Ray. I, I want to hear Gus and Odessa. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but just contact me on Facebook under Ray Winbush. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Ray, for right. your call Thank you. and all right, and, and for your s- support. That was Dr. Raymond Wimbush. Uh, Kimba, I know you have to leave. Kimba? Yes, I'm here. Okay. I know you have to leave, but one of the questions that someone has raised in our chat room, and it's a very interesting question, is the status of your voting rights. Uh, good question. Um, my life has been a little crazy with Moving to a new city and having a child, but um, but were your rights removed because you were a con- convicted felon? Yes, um, because I I was residing in Virginia, and Virginia has a waiting period of three years if it's nonviolent, five years if it's violent, and if you have a drug case, it automatically will be a five-year waiting period. So, therefore, I wasn't able to have my rights restored or to apply to have my rights restored. Let me make that clear because, ultimately, you will never get your rights restored unless you apply because it's not automatic restoration in Virginia. So I couldn't apply until 2010, and it was actually um, 2009 when I moved to Indiana. And so I've been told that if I go to the Indiana voter registration, that there, and I was told this within the last um, three months, that if I go to, uh, you know, the DMV and um, register, that it should go through fine for the state, but that's the first time I've ever heard that, and I'm not too clear on it because I've I've always had the impression that I had to go back to the state where my conviction came out of um, in order Mm -hmm. to get my rights restored. So I have to see what happens with that. Yeah, and you you should also check what the federal statutes say about it um, because you were uh, sentenced in a federal court. So with that being said, I just... I I I I think that's a very important thing that we ought to be examining. Kimba Smith, in your book Poster Child, the Kimba Smith story, you indicate that you were reborn in the spirit of new chances, and indeed, my dear sister, you were. And I thank you so much for your courage in writing this book. I thank you, and, and by the way, thank you for your acknowledgement um, of the work that I was more than willing and honored to do on your behalf in the book. Now, I didn't catch that, but Imani did. <laughs> okay. She says, Nani, Kimbo talks about you in her book. And I said, well, what, you know, and and she read it to me and thank you so very much. I know that no, thank you. You have been such a gracious gracious woman 
as you have been reborn in your spirit of new chances and I I I am just so proud. I am just so honored to have been part of the the the, the new life, the new era of uh Kimba Smith. And you're certainly going to have to come back and talk to us and tell us how the book is doing. And, I definitely um, will do that. And I won't, I won't let Gus tell all your secrets. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, thank well, you to well, uh, they, they both. definitely, they definitely know them all. And you know, yeah, they, yeah. I'm glad you're able to have them on the show too, because actually, you know, they they are my true heroes because they really stuck by me. You know, 110 percent. Absolutely, so. I would, I would say, one thousand percent, right, multiplied by one million. Thank you, Kimba yeah. Smith, and have a good Thank conference you. down there at okay. Open Society. And as you journey to Los Angeles from there for the NAACP uh, convention, and we'll Thank see you, so you at much. our common ground another time. Our guest, Kimba Smith. Reborn in the spirit of new chances. You're listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. We thank you for being with us tonight. We thank for all of those who are in our chat room with um, Black Ice and Alpho, uh, Lacey and Shaka Zulu and Nancy Langhart, Lockhart, I'm sorry, and... Um, if you would like to join in the discussion, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG and join in the discussion. When we come back from this very, very short break, we're going to be talking with the parents of Kimba Smith, the parent who never lost faith, the parent who labored night and day to bring justice to their daughter and to bring her home. We'll be right back. Tonight, hear from Kemba Smith, a woman who was battered but not broken. I was only on this earth 23 years, and I was sentenced to 24 and a half years in federal prison. The only child of a middle-class family, Kemba Smith graduated from high school and went on to pursue a degree in social work. I simply fell in love with the the wrong guy while I was a student in college. That wrong guy was the leader of a $4 million crack cocaine ring. And in the early 1990s, one of the FBI's most wanted. Kimba handled his money. I had talked to some bounty hunters, and he was asking me what it was that I had said during the conversation. I could not recollect everything that I had said. And that angered him, and so he began um, beating me in my body and um, kicking me. There was a particular time where I did try to leave, um, but I think ultimately um, because of the dynamics of the conspiracy, the drug conspiracy, he had been to my parents' home. Um, he had killed his best friend because he thought his best friend had cooperated with authorities. Um, it became a point where the authorities wanted me to give them him on a silver platter. And ultimately, I just felt like a robot, like I had to do whatever it was that he told me to do in order to protect myself and in order to protect my family. 
Kimba's boyfriend was found murdered, a suspect never arrested. At seven months pregnant, she turned herself in and pleaded guilty to conspiracy, money laundering, and lying to authorities. Her sentence, 24 and a half years with no chance of parole. In prison, Kimba gave birth as her family and civil rights groups fought for her release, saying she was a battered woman forced into being a drug mule for drugs she had never sold, used, or handled. I do think that there should have been some punishment. Um, I'm not one of those people that have had the prison experience that says, oh, I didn't do anything wrong or, oh, it was all his fault. Um, I do believe the 24 and a half years was um, excessive. Kimba's story got national attention, and after serving six and a half years, then-President Bill Clinton gave her clemency, setting her free on December 22, 2000. National organizations, congressional members, People rallied behind my case and my cause because they thought it would set a precedent for other individuals who were similar. And it did. Her involvement with lawmakers in several states fueled a re-examination of lengthy prison sentences for first-time nonviolent drug offenders. And in 2010, President Obama passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which now limits the length of those sentences. There are hundreds of other chemicals. Our common ground, talk that matters, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for being with us tonight. Joy. It's really a joy to have her home, um, and she's 
she has a family, her husband, who she married like two and a half years ago, air traffic controller, beautiful son, Amani, who's grown up to be quite a young man, um, will be going off to college next year, and a beautiful daughter. So, and, and Kim is so focused right now in terms of what she wants to do, where she wants to go. Um, it's just been a joy. When we, when we thank God for bringing her home to us, because we know we can do all things through him. Mm-hmm. Gus, you know, um, one of the things, it was remarkable to watch you and Odessa in one of the most terrible crises that any parent um, must face. Uh, the struggle and the, you know, uh, when I play that song, Soldier of Love, you you, you, you two uh, really are soldiers of love. How much of your life had to be put aside, and what was the cost mm. in terms of what you had to give up by, um, in, in terms of your whole life to spend all of those years moving from one city to the next, one conference to the next, writing letters, visiting Kim, I, 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 you know, making sure that Armani was taken care of, making sure. I, I mean, you, your sacrifice was so terrific. Tell us about that. Well, we gave up everything. For Kimba to make sure she had a better life, because I, I I saw that that was a wrong that was done to our daughter, and I was not going to allow it to happen. And uh, I was taking no hostages. We were taking no hostages. Uh, we we filed bankruptcy twice, lost everything but but the house. Um, we spent over fifty thousand dollars in long distance phone calls to make sure her son talked to her every day, unless we were on the road traveling. Um, Expended all of our 401ks, all of our retirement funds. But if you understand God, God always gives it all the way back, gives it back to you if you're doing the right thing. And your job was affected as well, Gus. I lost my job. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tell we, us we about never, that, Gus. We, we never look back. We never look back. Uh, when they found out, I, I was an accountant, I'm an accountant, so I, I work for um, a company here in Richmond, and uh, which is primarily a white company. But when they found out that uh, my daughter was involved in drugs, uh, they told me, um, you know, that I could go out and speak publicly, but I couldn't tell anybody where I work. So I told them, you know, you can take this job and shove it. My first priority is my family. And I don't know how, I don't know where, but we're going to make it without you. Um, so we, we struck out, and everywhere down the line, God put somebody in our place that, that made things happen. Um but the first thing that, that, that you need to understand, you need to educate yourself about what's going on. And that's what we did. Because you need to understand that the ju- judicial system in this country, as far as we're concerned, and it's about money. It's called the prison industrial complex. And it's about housing us. And that's why we have so many of our people in prison. And until we step up as a people and get involved, and just instead of saying like someone I heard someone say earlier that around the dinner table say oh that happened to them they'll they'll be okay or somebody will step up and get them out you need to step up because it's going to take all of us to change these laws to bring about change uh, to get Congress to be accountable um, to get out get the president to be accountable 
it takes all of us to get involved because I had no idea what was going on because I was one of those people that would sit back and say, oh, somebody else will take care of that young person who went to prison. But once I, it happened to me, I realized that I had to step up and get involved. Because we, we would go to conferences all over the country and some out of the country, and we walk into a room, and there would be maybe 1,500 people at this conference about prison industrial complex, and out of those 1,500 people, it will probably be 1,300 white folks and 200 black folks to support us because we were in prison. So we need to get out of that mindset that, oh, we can't talk about this, or they got what they deserved, and step up and make a difference. BJ, I don't mean to overshadow my wife, but uh, no. you know, I have a, a tremendous passion. Yeah, he, he still does. And, B.J., an earlier caller um, will ask him the question, um, if she could approximate maybe how many Kimbas would it take to effect change. And she did a good job of answering his question, but I would also like to add to what she said is that, you know, even he himself, he mentioned he has a son, I think, that's caught up. So, you know, it takes uh, parents involved instead of, uh, you know, uh, falling prey to guilt, shame. If they feel that it's wrong and the child has been dealt an injustice, then they need to speak up because the child, once incarcerated, does not have a voice. Gus and I met several people along the way, uh, you know, high positions, um, one person in particular that we know whose son had a long a mandatory sentence, and uh, we were attending a conference together, and we um, were on a panel. Gus and I were on a panel, and his wife had hoped that the father would come up to speak about their son, and um, he left because he did not want to, he didn't want the people attending to know that his child, his son was incarcerated. So, you know, first we have to, deal with that uh, shame, that guilt, if you feel that your child has been dealt a, a sentence that is so uh, so unfair, um, and do something about it. And you start out locally doing something about it, you know, speaking out locally, writing letters to your paper, whatever you can do, that's what you do. And, of course, going in to talk, talk to your local people in Congress, you know, that always uh, was helpful to, to Gus and myself. And starting with the church, our church was very supportive to us, but there are a lot of churches that are not. And I think back in the day, churches, that was the pillar of the community. Today, you need to step up. The churches need to step up and get involved in politics. And we've got enough black churches in this country to make a difference. Well, one of the things that was so difficult is is in, 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 in the campaign around uh, Kimba's issues and Kimba's re release was that we don't have enough people with visibility who, one, understand these issues as it relates to our community, and two, who have the courage to be able to step away, as you did, uh, Gus, from your job and say, you know, I got kids who are vulnerable. Uh, to this kind of victimization, and so we—you're we, right—we have to change that, and we have to change it one by one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to—we have to send a letter to our pastor and say, yeah. you know, you're talking nonsense in your pulpit. Right. Your church doesn't have programs 
that speak to the spirit and the collective issues that face our community, and you need to change. Right. You need to set up programs that deal with prison ministry, that deal with politics on the Hill, politics in your local community, that when a bill is coming before your, your local assembly or your state assembly, that you have some from somebody from your church who's monitoring those bills. And if there's a bill that's going to harm your community, then you need to support that, not to support the bill, but to be there to be in opposition of that bill. Because um, too many people sit back and they don't, like us, you need to be proactive, not reactive. You need to be up front, not on the back end. Because mm-hmm. if you mandatory sentencing, at the, especially at the federal level, is so complicated that most attorneys don't understand it. And it took us a long time to, so we understood it. Thanks to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Elaine Jones, and our congressman, Congressman Scott, who stood by us through thick and thin and actually explained the whole process to us. It's a very complicated process, and you hear Kimber talk about conspiracy. Conspiracy is something that they can just throw anything in. So, And they don't need proof. They don't need to catch you with drugs on you. All they need to do is for John to say, yeah, he was involved. And then it's, it's up to Johnny, up to the other kid to prove that he was not involved. So when they get the guy that was dealing drugs to testify against the guy that didn't was not involved with drugs, and he's working for the prosecutor, who do you think the jury is going to believe? So it's a, our young people need to need to be educated about how easy it is to get caught up and get life, double life, 20 years, 30 years in prison. Because you would not believe the young college students who are in prison. Or adults. Or co- Matter of fact, I know uh, people who in administrative positions who got caught up the same way. A young lady in Maryland who was the um, uh, superintendent of schools is now serving time in federal prison for, for the same identical thing as Kemp. So it, it's, it's not... She was the superintendent of schools. I believe she was the superintendent of schools in PG County, and she was she was one of the administrators in the school system, and fell in love with the guy. Guy said he was had a job, but he was dealing drugs. And to make a long story short, she got I think seven years in federal prison. Uh huh. Uh huh. And because we don't know uh, the drug laws, we don't understand what's going on. It's about education. And as far as HBCUs are concerned, every HBCU, every school in the country, but especially HBCUs, because it's our people. There needs to be some form of education frontline when you walk in the door at an HBCU in terms of federal institutions or local institutions. How the laws work, how easy it is to get caught up, and the implications of getting caught up. The quick, quick you know, story. Of, quick story. Kimber was at the University of Maryland speaking, and was a young lady that came up to her afterwards and asked her to, could she have her autograph? So Kim said, sure. So the young lady pulled out her uh, her degree from the University of Maryland and said, look, I want you to sign this. Kim said, no, I can't sign that. You worked too hard for that. That's yours. She said, Kimber, you don't understand. When I was a freshman, I was in the same predicament you were in, and I read your story, and it saved my life. Because she educated herself by reading Kimmel's story. So HBCUs, they need some form of educating young people about drug laws and the implications of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, me, let me ask you, uh, because I think it's something that parents, uh, that people in our community face all the time, about the overwhelming sense 
that you had lost all control as Kimba was in trial, as Kimba was first arrested, uh, that these that these charges uh, came up. Uh, I mean, you were dealing with things that were so foreign to you, bounty hunters and yeah. and yeah. trying to make arrangements for your daughter to turn herself in to federal officials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were we were dealing with a lot, and like I said, the lack of education in terms of how the system works uh, really took us a while to get acclimated to where we needed to go, how we needed to do it, and how we needed to get there. So it was really um, a daunting task, especially for my wife, because I was the one that was holding her by the hand and said, come on, we can do this, we can do this. And I, I refused to say, no, I can't do it, because I knew with God's strength that I could get it done. And it was no no question about turning back. I was going to take it to the end, because really to, today I don't realize I don't understand. I don't. I look at that time frame and I said it went by like clockwork, and uh, there was just so much that transpired every day. I can think of something that I forgot. If I had to write a book today, I couldn't get it all in, in a book because I couldn't. You know, every day it's a different thing that goes through my mind that we went through or a challenge. Like the first time we went to see Kim. Uh, we were so broke we couldn't have bought a mouse to pay our underwear, and um, we didn't know where the money was going to come from. But we knew we were going to see her that week, and uh, we prepared to go. And I think two or three days before we were supposed to go, our church came up, called us, and said, "Look, we got a check for you." So I know that was nobody but God to mm-hmm. enable us mm-hmm. to go to visit her. So mm-hmm. and there were just so many things that had to be done uh, to make sure. We got from point A to point B. And without the support of people all across this country, and I do mean all across this country like you, and I could name other people, all Ray Wimbush, uh, I could name people on top of people that were involved in some form or fashion. Some people we, we will never know that were involved. Yes, um, yes. There's just so much that, that, that transpired during that, during that time frame to make all this come to fruition. And, B.J., I have to jump in whenever, you know, I get an opportunity because, as you can tell, Gus still has a lot of a lot of compassion. <laughs> a lot That's of why compassion. Gus and I used to have our conversations right, from, right, from right. midnight some, to two. <laughs> right. And some of the things he mentioned regarding the churches, um, uh, those issues of, you know, we've already um, implemented them uh, at our church, and, of course, Gus is the person who's heading it all up. But also I want to, again, say a thank you to you uh, because you were the person who set up the Kimball Smith Justice Project that I think took our cause to a different level in terms of letting folks who were uh, Internet savvy, you know, read about her story, know about it, know what they needed to do. So, you know, we love you. You know your family to us and Dr. Ray Winbush and so many, many, many others that, you know, the names just yeah. not coming to mind. You know, we are yeah. grateful to all of you. Kim connected me with Tanya McClary, yes. uh, who I hadn't talked to for years. Yes. I, I think that one of the things that all activists, <coughs> excuse me, uh, all activists have to come to grips with is that at some point you've got to have a vision for what right. the outcome is going to be. Mm-hmm. And for me, the outcome was Kimba Smith walking in to the back porch of your house. 
Mm-hmm. That was the outcome. Mm-hmm. And 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 the thing is, Odessa and 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 Gus, I will always be grateful for the lessons that you taught me as a parent about perseverance on your love. Never give up. That was an important important role that you played for all of us mm-hmm. because Gus you know sometimes you would be so tired yeah but you never you and Odessa never faltered in your face never mm-hmm. and and that is a wonderful gift and you are you are indeed my family Kimba will always be my my daughter uh, Armani will always be someone who I focus on and 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 say, you know, the activists have to have mo- have to have a lot of motivation. And I would look at at Armani and say, we have got to do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> and the other thing, and folks, I want you to listen to this very carefully. What I'm about to say to these two people, I love you dearly. But when I too. saw you, I. Saw saw myself. I could not leave Newark that day without making a pledge. I am going to do this with them. They need support. And that's what you have to say. That's what you have to when you find your passion, when you find your 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 cause. Folks, it's about commitment. Because we went to that, this that conference really in in Newark and this lady BJ approached us and said, look, I want to help you. I want to do this. I want to do that. And we said to ourselves, we said, okay, you know, because a lot of people will do that, but they don't follow through. So BJ came up to our room with us and stayed, I know, eight hours mapping out what she was going to do. And then when she went back the next week, it was all done. That's commitment. Yep. That's commitment. Well, you have no idea the joy that I take in watching Kimba do what she's doing as an activist, but in her personal life, the marriage, the new baby, um, Armani getting ready to go to college over the next year. I I just, you know, there's so much joy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we do it one one cause at a time. Mm -hmm. I've got to go, but... um, Gus and Odessa Smith, I want to say to you, on behalf of a very grateful nation, thank you for bringing this issue to the place where we now have um, a Fair Sentencing Act. You made that happen. So thank you so very much. And I know Odessa's got to get to her boudoir. <laughs> Love you both, and you'll have to come back. We're going to be watching this book. Never give up, no matter what it is. Never give up. Never give up. Thank you so very much. That was thank you, William Smith and Odessa Smith, the parents of I mean uh, William Smith and Odessa Smith, (laughs) the parents of Kimba Smith. They are indeed the. Soldiers of love. And for the, for our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining me for my 20 years as a broadcaster. 
I don't think that I have ever had so much anxiety, but also anticipation of doing this interview. You should know that as close as I have been to this story and to this cause and to Kimba Smith and her family, it is the first broadcast that I have done with either of them. Simply because sometimes in life you have to do what you do, get it done, and step to the side. Don't forget about TruthWorks Network uh, at Blog Talk Radio on Wednesday night. Elvin Dowling and friends, architects of change. He is a change and motivation coach, uh, has lots of good stuff, 9 p.m. Wednesday night, TruthWorks Network. And on Saturday, the Alpha Show. My brother, my brother, my brother. Alpha. Push back politics, just damn. 3 p.m. Saturday, TruthWorks Network. And we will be right back here with Open Mic Saturday night. Uh, we've had some very, very intense, riveting, and informational programming going on for the last month. And it's time for us to just talk. And we'll be talking at 347 I'm Janice Graham, and as always, I will be listening for you here at TruthWorks Network, at Our Common Ground, oh gosh, at Our Common Ground here at Blog Talk Radio, and we want you to know that this is the sanctuary for black voice and black thought. I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being with us in this Our Common Ground special with Kimba Smith. We especially thank Kimba Smith for joining us, for being victorious, and having the courage to tell her story that others may learn. It was my pleasure and honor to have been one of her warriors. We especially thank our callers and those who have participated in our chat room. We're here each Saturday night, 10 p.m., our common ground, the Black Voice and Thought Sanctuary on the Internet. Kimba's story is one of victory, but there are many other stories out there where others who have been victimized by the saints still languish in the prison of our country. Learn more by the book, Poster Child, The Kimba Smith Story. This has been another Our Common Ground special, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Grant, and I'll be listening to you.